0: Study Media.
1: Yet another Totally Football show. Today, West Ham have Kepa for breakfast and burst Chelsea's bubbles, while Greenwood leads Red Renaissance. He's a Mason, and so are the Red Devils. Plus, bitter cherries, and on the weekend the pubs open, points getting pulled all over the championship. We investigate in this Totally Football show, in association with Paddy Power. That one going out for Eddie and the boys at the Vitality in these dark and difficult times. Hello, listener. It's Thursday, the 2nd of July. And uh, today I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Duncan Alexander. Good morning, James. Good morning to you. Uh, Lindsay Hooper's also with us. Hi, Lindsay. Welcome back. Good
0: morning. Been a while.
1: It certainly has too long. Too long. And also, Rory Smith. Hi, Rory. Morning, James. Good morning to you. We'll have Matt Slater and Laurie Whitwell as well, uh, joining us on the line later on. Rory, last
2: time we heard from you, you were getting Larry on the streets of Liverpool. I was, I was putting on my hazmat suit and going out into into an actual crowd of people, uh, which wow, I was. How did that work out? Uh, well, thus far, like six days on, I am, I am asymptomatic, so I'm, I'm relieved. Um, I had a mask on and I didn't stop moving. That was my approach for dealing with okay. potential risks. But it was, it was a really weird experience to be around a lot of people for the first time in about four months.
0: How many are we talking?
2: Well, you know what it's like when you're in a big crowd, you kind of massively overestimate it. So I'd have said several million, but apparently it was <laughs> between like eight and 15,000.
3: I mean, when you launch that firework, they get out of the way. So that's one yeah, method. Yeah,
2: that's um, there was there was a, outside the crop actually. I wasn't there for the pier head scenes on Friday, but outside the crop on Thursday night, there was a moment where a firework got shot into the air and and went off target and f- came into the crowd, and you sort of saw people running everywhere. And that was the point that I thought, no, this is this is too larry for me. Cross that line. All right, but well, that was the
1: night that Liverpool became champions, of course. And this evening, Thursday evening. Uh, they'll be received in glory at the Etihad having their Guardiola of Honour as Liam David O'Donnell described it nice one ahead of their clash with Man City that's one of two games that are still to come in this round 32 of the season the other one being Sheffield United Spurs already though we've had loads of games and loads of goals and it's getting really really interesting in the top 4-5 race and also the relegation battle particularly after Wednesday night's game at the London Stadium let's start there
4: you're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson, part of The Athletic Podcast Network. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, make sure you check out their coverage of each and every Premier League club by taking out a free 30-day trial by heading to theathletic.com slash totally.
2: Yarmolenko might be through here, and Yarmolenko's been found on the edge of the box, just really going to deal
5: with... He's Andre Yarmolenko, and he scores for West Ham United in the 89th minute of the game!
1: There it was, the Yamalenko goal. Where? had he been? Andre Yarmolenko, one of the many questions after that game. Well done, the Hammers, who not only have done the double over Chelsea for the first time since 2002-03, but also are the first team from the bottom five to win since the restart. How about that?
3: Yeah, I mean, before that game kicked off, it looked like no one in the bottom five was ever going to win again. And we were set to see the first bottom five all with fewer than 30 points since 1905 which when you think three points for a win came in in the early 80s is, is pretty unlikely but um mm. but West Ham looked good ish
1: they did didn't they? well they had 29 percent possession but they made it count when they had it particularly on that last goal also Lindsay they had to do it the hard way in terms of the way the match started it, it couldn't have been any more uh, damaging to their morale
0: Exactly. I think the character that they showed was the particular strong point here because VAR came in. You saw David Moyes look deflated on the sidelines, but I don't think that really resonated with the players. They seemed to carry on. And I think that was credit to them. Um, And then as the game went on, certainly in the last 10 minutes, you felt that they could get that winner. Um, and looking at the Antonio post match interview, I don't know whether you've seen that with Sky. How brilliant was that? He he shows just how much it meant. Um, and three points now, I think that that could do it. That could do it because there's real strugglers with Watford and Bournemouth down there. I, I think West Ham probably another point, and they'll be okay.
2: Yeah, I, I was, before that game, I was of the view that we should relegate the bottom five, that we should just rip up the rule book. Everything's changed anyway because of the, the pandemic. So just, just relegate them all. Like if you, they, they what, competed for 39 points and got three between them before that game. That's not, that's not good enough. You are adding nothing to this division. You've had three months off to reset and rebuild yourselves. Re- Re- regain your shattered confidence and you get three points out of 39 they should all have been relegated and t- I think Lindsay's right that it may well be that 30 points somehow is enough to keep you up no one else is getting 33 West Ham one win and that that will be them done I think
1: mm. well it was Sucek nil Varcek one Uh, early on and then of course Chelsea roared up the other end and got the penalty to put them ahead and West Ham retook the lead through the wonderful Mikel Antonio and wasn't his post game interview a delight, particularly the bit where he signed off with thank you for having me which uh, was delightful and and then William, who I'm sure you have a stat about Duncan equalises again for Chelsea before that terrific strike from Yarmolenko, who's I completely forgotten about, we were saying the other day about West Ham and how when they've survived in the past they've always had a difference maker and they don't have that this season could Yamalenko be that man
3: yeah he looked he looked good in that cameo I mean Willian as you mentioned um, he's the first player ever in Premier League history to score in every month of the calendar year I mean as someone pointed out not many players have had that opportunity and yes correct that is true but um I mean, from Chelsea's point of view, it's pretty worrying, I think. Lampard's only the second manager to lose 10 Premier League games in a single season in the Abramovich era. The only other man to do it was Conte. Um, and then he got the sack, even though he'd won the league. Lampard doesn't have that to, to fall back on. But what he does have is obviously the legacy and the, and the club legend status. So it is interesting that you know he's, he's been allowed more rope than any other Chelsea manager in, in modern history. Um, and yes... Chelsea look good going forward but they're not going to challenge for the title next season if they continue to defend like this. Only Norwich have let in more goals from corners this season and only Norwich and Villa have conceded more from crosses so I mean that is not good and it's you know it's all very well spending all that money on Timo Werner but I would suggest the defence and the goalkeeper uh, need some uh, work over the summer. Yeah, they've conceded
2: 44 goals this season, which I think is their second worst in the Premier League after the the famous 96-97 season when, I can't remember what Chelsea did, they, I think they won a cup. That is kind of remarkable that they've let in that many goals. And it does suggest that there is a kind of, like a structural flaw to the team. And I agree with Duncan, I'm not sure that signing Werner and Z actually really sorts that out. How come they beat Man City then? Well, I kind of think that they're a bit, they're a bit streaky, Chelsea. They're the same as Manchester United, that when everything when they can build up a head of steam and everything's going well they they look really really good and then as soon as things don't click or or kind of a player loses form or the goals don't come or or you just run into a kind of obdurate opponent which amazingly is what west ham proved to be i'm not sure that lampard or solskjaer can really sort that out that quickly and i think that's going to be that might be the thing that next season holds both of them back from getting closer to liverpool and city which is that, that they will have runs we've seen them both do it where they kind of go 10, 12, I think United are 15 unbeaten. And then they have a setback. And I'm just not sure that either manager quite solves the problems as quickly as they need to.
0: If you look as well at the 89th minute winner from Yarmolenko, not to take anything away from that strike, but it is well known that when he drifts in on that left-hand side, he he often repeats this same style of goal. And it should be a warning to everyone else watching West Ham that you know, you want to make sure that he doesn't get that room and that he doesn't get in onto that favoured foot. Uh, so I think it isn't completely blameless from Chelsea's point of view with that. I know it was a nice goal, but I do think that's something that they could have been forewarned about as well.
1: On the subject of West Ham's obduracy and Mikel Antonio in that post-game interview was kind of suggesting that in his view this had been the kind of performance they'd been doing quite a lot of late but they just hadn't had the breaks this time everything fell into place for them is that right have we been unnecessarily harsh on on the Hammers
0: I think that they have got the quality of player that should be at least mid-table So there is a part of me that thinks they have been underperforming and maybe not getting some breaks along the way is part and parcel of a season in the Premier League. I am shocked when I look at their personnel compared to a team like Bournemouth, for instance, and Norwich, that they are so close together in, in that huddle. Because I think West Ham should be way ahead of those two teams.
1: Well, they're currently three points clear of the bottom three. Chelsea, meanwhile, have to worry because that top four race or top five, Man City's verdict, is expected now on the 13th of July. It's looking incredibly tight. Four teams, just three points separating them. Leicester on 55, Chelsea on 54, Man United and Wolves on 52. Last day of the season at this rate it's going to be interesting because Leicester will be playing Man United and Chelsea will be up against Wolves, Bosch, oh, and West Ham will be up against Villa too. Anyway, uh, Wolves and Man United very much the teams in form in that top four, or five race. So we'll talk about them next.
5: It's America's birthday this Saturday, so here at Paddy Power pa we thought what better time to celebrate the fact that we don't live in America. Yes, there's some good old-fashioned equestrian racing at Epsom in the afternoon, and then two of England's oldest association football clubs, Chelsea and Watford, will do battle in Kensington. And to celebrate, we're giving customers five of the Queen's pounds with which to bet on each event. That's a five pound free and gratis bet on the two twenty-five at Epsom, and a five pound free and gratis bet on Chelsea versus Watford. Paddy Power pa. online exclusive. New customers must deposit ten pounds in total per customer. Opt-in required.
4: T's and C's apply. 18 plus. You're listening to The Totally Verbal Show with James Richardson. All right, listener, coming up this
1: weekend, big games. Chelsea hosting Watford on Saturday. Leicester up against Palace. Man United take on Bournemouth. And Wolves have a go at Arsenal. Uh, obligatory tweet from that red-haired dude who says, With Chelsea and Leicester losing, is it realistic to say the top four could be Liverpool, City, United and Wolves? Wolves, Lindsay. Oh. It is realistic, isn't it?
0: It's a possibility, James, isn't it? It's a strong possibility. However, I have sat down with Willy Bolly this week to do an interview, and it did concern me that he said they're aiming for a draw against Arsenal. I think what he was trying to say is that... They are putting more of an emphasis on clean sheets at the moment, which has been impressive. And he used this phrase of not wanting to suffer. So that probably relates to the gruelling schedule as well. And having watched Wolves the last couple of matches, I was at Molyneux for the Bournemouth match. It does feel like a deliberate tactic to get to half-time at nil-nil. I don't know whether anyone else picked up on that.
2: I didn't I didn't realise they were trying to do that. But there's been, there's been It feels a
0: mo- like that when you're watching it.
2: There's a lot of teams who seem to be trying to get to half time with it at nil-nil at the moment. Um, but it would make sense. Like, I think there's, there's been a lot of, kind of en- energy conservation about a lot of teams in the last, well, I suppose the first like three weeks of the restart, teams have been quite keen to, no one's really come out of the blocks fast and that must be to do with kind of managing your
3: workload. But I think that possibly might change now. I mean, yesterday was obviously July the 1st, was 4.25 goals per game, up from 2.15 in the June games. And it kind of made me realise finally, after all these years, why teams do pre-season. I just thought it was to annoy me and to, you know, fill up teletext. But actually it turns out that, you know, teams do need two or three games to to get up to speed. So I think actually the rest of this month, we're going to see a lot more kind of fast-paced action.
0: Diogo Jota definitely does. He is notoriously a player that after a few weeks when the season starts, starts to get going, but it does take a little while and that has been evident on his recent performances.
1: So Wolves have had three straight wins since the restart, allowing their opponents only three shots on target in those three matches. Ri Patricio has only had to save one shot from inside his penalty box in six hours of football, but... They were facing West Ham, Bournemouth and Villa and they didn't have a huge number of chances themselves. So how good are Wolves? Have they hit form or just a sweet run of fixtures?
0: How good are they? I think it is difficult to say when you look at that opposition. Um, Arsenal last season at Molineux, they beat them 3-1. And that was one of the performances I really enjoyed of the season, actually, because Arsenal is such an expansive team as well. It was a really good test. Um, They had a lot of the ball. Wolves like doing that sometimes. Uh, But of course, Arsenal very quick on the counter-attack with Aubameyang too. So it is going to be an interesting matchup. I think defensively, they're looking surer than I've seen them all season. I think this back three has just, since Willy Bolly came back from that injury, has just developed so well. But not only that, a mention for Romain Saiz, who has slotted into that back three seamlessly. And... They are really now a very difficult team to break down. And Rui Patricio, if you get past the defence, you've still got to beat Rui in goal, who I think has also looked really, really solid. So defensively, yes, Wolves look better than ever, I think. Um, in, In attack, we've had this tactic of bringing Adama Traore off the bench And then injecting some pace into the last twenty minutes of matches. I don't know whether that will continue to work. So I do think there are other things that need to be worked on with attack. I think we haven't had as many shots on target, in particular. Uh, But when you look at the teams around us, apart from Manchester United, we have to be a front runner to get into that top four.
2: I think the the way the fixtures have fallen works brilliantly for Wolves to have those kind of those three, yeah, slightly kind of more. Appealing games right off the back of the of the restart has kind of given them, as Duncan mentions, like that that sense of pre season. If you if you want the closest you're going to get to a pre season game is Bournemouth, it has an air of a kind of let's just play the first hour and see what happens game. And I wonder whether this now Arsenal represents kind of a step up in in intensity. Although this is this current Arsenal, not the Arsenal that we kind of think of. And if you look at the running, there are points there for Wolves. Sheffield United are in freefall. Everton are, are going well, but have nothing particularly to play for. Burnley have nothing to play for. Palace have nothing to play for. And then Chelsea on the last day, like you say, James, that's that's not bad if you're if you're looking at kind of. Getting enough points to overhaul one of Chelsea or Leicester, that that is certainly feasible, I think, for Wolves to finish. Maybe not top four, but certainly top five.
1: All right, but what about Arsenal then this Saturday, who, yes, haven't been the most convincing of teams, but are coming off a 4-0 win over Norwich. Looking good there, Duncan.
3: Yeah, I mean, they were helped by a fairly catastrophic error from uh, Tim Krul for Aubameyang's first goal. Took Aubameyang to the same number of goals as Huddersfield have scored in the Premier League, but it took him three games longer to be fair, so possibly Huddersfield's still better in that sense. But yeah, I mean, then it was pretty much uh, a romp. You know, Norwich have scored one goal in the last eight games and there was this thing about they were the the best kind of bottom team for a long time which possibly was true in the autumn and winter and they did obviously beat man city but since kind of you know february they've been abysmal um and yeah arsenal i mean it was nice to see cedric uh, celebrate his four-year contract with that goal after 229 seconds um he scored one goal in 10,090 minutes of Premier League football at Southampton so he's, he's on an upward curve both professionally and statistically so that was good um, but yeah I mean I think Arsenal is still a hard team to predict I mean I think at home fair enough but away at Wolves is, is a much bigger tougher prospect.
1: Away at Wolves what's going to happen Lindsay?
0: Oh, well, given these chats that I've had this week, uh, the one with Willy Bolly is uh, is particularly resonating with me. I think it might be 1-0 again. 1-0 Wolves.
1: Seems fair. We'll, we'll find out, of course, Saturday tea time. That game kicking off at 5.30. Next up, listener, I have won the battle with myself. I've learned to love Man
4: United. Find out why after this. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power.
5: Mason Greenwood. Has three colleagues in the box. Fernandez is one. And that was absolutely lethal.
3: Just as Brighton were looking to get back at Manchester United.
0: They cut them
1: apart. Yes, listener, Man United are back. Are they the latest fallen Northern Giant about to end their... Uh, seven years of hurt, and why have Solskjaer side emerged from lockdown, transformed into this sleek, sexy, soccer ball machine? Well, we're joined now by Laurie Whitwell, uh, the Athletics' Man United correspondent and uh, guest on the Talk of the Devils podcast. Uh, Laurie, thanks for joining us. First of all, what an insanely good name for a Man United podcast that is.
6: Yeah, I can't claim credit for that one. Somebody else with much more creative uh, juices than me uh, thought of that one, but yeah, I like it. Right.
1: And, and here's the thing. We were just talking off air about the fact that we like Man United. That was always one of the <laughs> constants of football for me, that I couldn't bear them. But it's impossible not to enjoy watching them right now.
6: Yeah, it's certainly a nice feeling for anyone with a United affiliation. Um, I think the, the goals at Brighton particularly you know, stood out. Um, I mean, the piece that I did after the third goal for the Athletic was uh, about the counterattacking uh, potential of this team and the fact that it kind of reminded me so much of those goals at Arsenal um, back in the day, you know, Rooney and Ronaldo uh, slicing through it and the kind of quality that they have on the break. Uh, and also now that addition of Bruno Fernandes means that they can actually break down some deep defences, which was obviously the, the issue for such a long period throughout this season it's it's mad to think back to that Burnley game in January where it was doom and gloom the, the atmosphere at Old Trafford was absolutely toxic um, losing 2-0 at home to now this 15 games unbeaten loads of goals scored 11 clean sheets um, it looks like it's, it's really on to something Right like the good old days is it going to last this time do you think? Uh, I've got more faith certainly that this is lasting than the initial bump that Solskjaer got. I think that very much was a anyone but Mourinho situation where, okay, Solsha clearly came in and, and put smiles back on faces and, and kind of freed up a lot of the players. But um, it was always, it was never quite a, a situation where it would be uh, for lasting success. That and I, I think Solsha actually said. Uh, to Ed Woodward from a very early point, this this squad needs renovation. It needs improvement. Um, needs a different profile of player. Um, he's now got quite a few of those in, at least, but clearly needs more. I think that's the the one thing. You look at the starting eleven, and it's a really good uh, team now. You've got a few extras, you know, with with, with Scott McTominay and Fred that could rotate with Matic or, or maybe one of the other sort of midfielders. But then beyond that, the squad probably needs a bit more quality and depth to actually you know mount a, a sustained, well, certainly mount a sustained title challenge given how far Liverpool are ahead and and Manchester City but I think you saw at Norwich and in the second half at Brighton after the changes came the level wasn't quite as high so um, that's the challenge now for United. Mm. You mentioned uh, Fernandes whose arrival has been
1: seismic particularly in terms of the the stats Mm. but is the real reason for Man United's sudden renaissance the lumbering 31 year old reserve who happened to come on against Mm. Spurs?
6: Nemanja Matic, are we talking about? Yes. Yeah, sorry. I, I was trying to think of his age then. I, was, I couldn't quite. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think he's been brilliant. I mean, he it just gives that balance to the team I think we were all sort of wondering how will Bruno and Pogba fit in the same side together and really I thought it has to be Matic even though Tom and, a and Fred I'm a big fan of both of theirs the discipline that he brings to the team the kind of selflessness that he he has where he just sits there he, he does cover a lot of ground though to be fair you know he, he gets um, sort of across the pitch I suppose is, is the best way rather than up and down it um, but he, he's, he's looked real quality I mean the uh, game against Sheffield United I think even though Marshall's scored a hat-trick I think perhaps he was my man of the match just for the way he went about things Patrice obviously flagged him up for the Brighton game and it's probably unlucky that he didn't start at Spurs because Solskjaer probably wanted to have some faith in, in the players that had got you know more on on the, the unbeaten run, and he, he he perhaps didn't feel he could necessarily start Pogba, so that meant that probably he had more space to give you know Fred and McTominay time. But Matic probably since the turn of the year has been one of United's best performers, most consistent. You know just behind Bruno probably in, in um, the level of contribution to the team. And I mean he's he's signed, a, they've extended his contract for another year, so he'll be at the club at least until 2021. And I I'm told they're in talks, you know, to perhaps extend that even further. And I, I wouldn't be disappointed. If that is the case,
1: wow. Okay. A wonderful hook pass to unleash that uh, third United mm-hmm. goal uh, midweek. Lindsay.
0: I was just wondering, Laurie, whether the single biggest thing that Fernandez has brought to the team is that he's got them looking forward. Um, from from the moment he arrived, I was getting so frustrated watching Manchester United prior to his arrival, whereby the ball was often going backwards or within midfield. There was very few of those balls that were releasing strikers like Martial when we saw that hat-trick the other night. And is that the one single thing he's bought? He's got them now going down the pitch in the right direction.
6: Yeah certainly I mean you look at actually his past stats and this was the thing that originally when United were linked with him last summer um, and they sort of distanced themselves from him which seems a bit odd now but it was actually the completion rate of his of his passes so it was like 70 something percent not, not like a high percentage basically but the reason for that is because he tries things and yeah he might not succeed all the time and sometimes I think for example away at Spurs even though it, I think he did actually get sort of mana match there I, I sort of thought maybe he was a little bit lower than his usual standards just because he, he kind of was hitting them quickly that the passes forwards and perhaps not taking his time on them but I guess that's just what you get with him that sometimes he will try stuff and it comes off brilliantly and other times it doesn't quite work but at least there's the chance there whereas as you say previously United's midfield was a bit pedestrian and it was you know passing it sideways too much taking too much time Ponderous I mean Solskjaer was tearing his hair out at times watching it because I don't think that's what he was asking them to do but Bruno's actually got the quality to to produce these passes and and then it means that Pogba the, the burden the creative burden isn't on him all the time so obviously he's the focus of so much attention and if you've got someone like Bruno next to him that can you know riff off him and and, you know he can take the mantle a bit more Pogba's a bit freer and he's actually not necessarily the star of the team which is crazy to say Um, I think the other thing that Bruno's done is also lead by example basically so although he scored two goals against Brighton he, he was leading the press like hugely um, sort of I think just before he scored that third he kind of chased down he was the leading sort of player in, in chasing down um, Matt Ryan um, when he was having a goal kick and then he also popped up at left back after he'd scored you know covering for, for Luke Shaw and that kind of energy and drive is just so infectious for people because if he's scoring the goals and putting in that work rate nobody has got any excuses to not do exactly what he's doing in terms of I think he covered the most distance as well when he went off at sort of 7.3k I'm sort of nicking that stat from Sky Sports, but it just sort of shows that he um, he's got that all-round character, and long may it continue.
3: Yeah, Laurie, I tweeted. I wondered where uh, United would have been had they, you know, actually bought Fernandez last summer, um, because you know you'd imagine they'd definitely be well into the top four, possibly even you know challenging City for second place.
6: Yep, yeah, totally agree. I think the impact that he's had has been remarkable. I don't think anyone predicted that he'd come in and fit so seamlessly but now that he has done we can use that as you say to kind of think back and and go well actually if he'd come in the summer (laughs) it's difficult to imagine him not having this kind of impact because you know the number 10 uh, for a long period was Andres Pereira or Jesse Lingard and they're just nowhere near the quality that he brings and yeah I don't know the reasons particularly why I, Solskjaer wanted to start with his defence so that's why Maguire and, and Wan-Bissaka were, were brought in to, to shore that up and then you build from there but clearly I think United were slow off the mark to complete certain deals I think they were slow to sell Lukaku and to get Alexis Sanchez out the door and that left very minimal time to then bring a creative player in a, a forward player in and Solskjaer left himself light he, he, he accepts this and I think that's quite a selfless thing, really. But, Um, but yeah Bruno if he'd come in I mean even if you look at January even if he'd come in when Solskjaer and Phelan originally went out and scouted him I think it was like January the 5th um, over in Portugal he didn't come in for another sort of three weeks after that and this is after that Burnley game and that's when it got really difficult for United and you just sort of wonder well could they not have done this deal before I don't you know they'll they'll say that they were negotiating for a lower fee you look at the the base rate and it's it's like £47 million I think something like that so it's not a, a, a massive amount of money for United's standards but equally I don't think it's that much less than what Sporting were originally demanding so when you add in all those factors buying him earlier for the you know, perhaps extra couple of million it might have been I think would have been hugely beneficial to the team this season
2: Laurie Whitwell of the Talk of the Devils podcast it, there's an interesting thing with Dreamwood that there's kind of a there's been a bit of a rewriting of history with Marcus Rashford that that he was always destined to be a star but that wasn't really the case when he was in the academy. They knew he was good. They presumed, I think, that he would be a Premier League player, but that he he wasn't one of those young kids who was, was talked about as a dead sir, that he wasn't someone you heard about when he was 15, particularly other than this kind of a talented kid called Marcus Rashford, one of a few that they're looking at. Greenwood is different. Greenwood people have been talking about since he was about 14 as as he is going to make it and you, you you looked at the way he's taken to that team and the way he's been brought in by Solskjaer, kind of quite softly quite gently that looks like he that makes that gives him the air of someone who could be kind of transformational for that team. so i think that they are still i'm slightly skeptical about it's 15 games unbeaten united have done this under Solskjaer throughout they've kind of gone on runs and then it all falls apart Greenwood is the kind of player who maybe could tie everything together if he becomes as good as people expect him to. Mm.
1: Well, 15 games unbeaten, as you say. The second longest unbeaten streak anywhere in Europe. 38 goals scored during that time and just four goals conceded. Their next three matches are Bournemouth, Aston Villa and West Ham. Bournemouth this Saturday, who won the reverse fixture at the start of November with a Josh King goal. Perhaps unlikely to see a similar score on this time round. We'll be talking
4: about why after this. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on the Athletic app, this is the Totally Football Show with James Richardson.
1: Listener, also this midweek, loads of other things happened. Arsenal did Norwich 4-0, we mentioned that. Everton beat Leicester 2-1. On Monday, it was Burnley with a 1-0 win at Palace. And Wednesday afternoon, Newcastle went down to Bournemouth. And romp to a 4-1 victory, which leaves the situation at the bottom. Thus, Norwich are now seven points from safety. Then you have three teams within one point of each other. Watford on 28 points and Bournemouth and Villa on 27. Let's talk about Bournemouth-Newcastle, the free-flowing, free-scoring Newcastle-Duncan.
3: Yeah, they've, uh, they've come out of the lockdown pretty good. They've scored 12% of their goals for the whole season uh, on the 1st of July, which uh, wasn't a sentence I envisaged saying last winter, but there we are. I mean, they're, they're only 10 points off a Champions League spot if it goes to 5th. I mean, more realistic is possibly 8th in the Europa League, but that would be a nice little, little achievement for Steve Bruce after the, you know, the opprobrium he suffered in the, in the autumn. Um, But yeah, they, I mean, the biggest story there, I think, is obviously how bad Bournemouth look and they look doomed, I would suggest.
0: I think if we're going to crow as well about Fernandez at United, as we just did, then we have to do the same for Sam Maximan, because he is a standout player. He could be in any of the top six sides easily. And I think Newcastle are going to really have to try and hold on to him because he does make that difference. And those three assists, brilliant, but it's the work rate, isn't it? He just never stops.
1: Yeah, imagine him at Wolves, Lindsay, if you had Traore at one side if and San we, Maximum at the yeah. other. It'd be if insane. we lose
0: Traore, he'd be a good a good person to bring in.
1: All right, OK. Bournemouth do look a bit broken, don't they? Four straight defeats now. Man United coming up. Yet when they won the reverse fixture back in November, they went to seventh in the table. Since then, they've taken 11 points from a possible 63. And they've got a really awful run of games coming up. They've got four of the top seven Inside eleven days, that's Man United, Spurs, Leicester, and Man City. I could go on. Here's another thing
2: about Bournemouth: they're not scoring goals anymore. No, that's always been their, their kind of saving grace. Bournemouth is is you you accept that they're a bit ropey at the back, but they're quite good going forward, and that has dried up. Not and not just since the restart; they've been they've been pretty bad in 2020. The, given the run in, given the way they performed against Newcastle, given how kind of beaten Eddie Howe sounded after the game. Bournemouth aren't quite as relegated as Norwich but they're not far off. It would it looks at the moment like it's like it's those two and one other from from probably Villa and Watford maybe West Ham to an extent, with Bournemouth, it's it's kind of been coming. They've always they've always kind of known this as a risk. They've they've had those long runs of of winless games that they they tend to then turn around and then win like five on the bounce and get out of it. That that's kind of what Bournemouth have done. But what's really staggering is that they've they don't seem to have prepared for the fact that relegation happens. That at the end of the season, three teams are relegated literally every year in the Premier League. They they don't seem to have noticed that. And unlike certainly Norwich, possibly even Watford if Bournemouth go down
3: you get the feeling that it's a long road back yeah and the other thing they kind of have this sort of image of being quite a plucky underdog club but they've spent a lot of money on transfer fees you know sort of 20 million on Dominic Solanke who hasn't exactly hit the ground running I mean you know lockdown everyone focused on the the rubbish on Bournemouth Beach but um, possibly uh, (laughs) Vitality was uh, the place to look
1: As regards the other games, Leicester losing 2-1 against Everton. Andrew Beasley pointing out that that famous 9-0 that Leicester enjoyed over Southampton. Since then, two teams have had almost identical records. Uh, Leicester only scoring two more goals than Saints in that period. They've only taken 17 points from 16 games. A pretty dramatic fall-off under Brendan Rodgers. And Mark Davidson also says, uh, let's not skim over Burnley winning... Uh, Let's have a discussion about how they only had one fit striker, players who are moving on who are not available, a bunch of mainly youth team players on the bench, and they still managed to go and win and get clear in the clean sheets table. Sean Dyche has worked miracles, says Mark.
0: In my opinion, Everton are in better shape than Leicester. Um, as a a future potential top four side. Um, And I know that everyone loves to rave about the job that Brendan Rodgers has done. And I don't want to take too much away because I think what Leicester have achieved this season, even if they do free fall a little towards the end, has still been fantastic. But Tielemans has been below par. They're not getting the goals that they used to get from midfield. And with Jamie Vardy not having his scoring boots at the moment, um, that seems to be the crux of the issues. Whereas with Everton, when you look at how Ancelotti's is building that side, Richarlison, Sigurdsson, Calvert-Lewin, I can see goals in this team and I can see them coming, certainly for next season, um, with a flurry. So I think they are one of the teams that could overtake Leicester going forward.
1: Don't skim over Burnley, though. Lindsay, <laughs> you went to their game at Palace, didn't you?
0: I did, I did. And there's there's issues there. So I did the post-match interview with Sean Dyche and you can tell that there's a lot that's gone on. He he referenced lockdown and how there's been a lot to adjust to um, and get his head around. And he was referring to this drifting relationship with the owners. Um, and I think talking to some colleagues at the match, there seems to be an overwhelming feeling amongst people the media industry anyway and it would be interesting to get Duncan and Rory's opinion that that Deich could be going to Aston Villa hmm
2: huh? this is true I, mean, I suppose it'd be easy from a kind of kit recognition point of view <laughs>
3: which
2: is, which is <laughs> it's I was in the think biggest that, but, challenge for any manager isn't it? It's it's a bit like getting divorced and then marrying someone with the same name as your previous partner. Just easier for everybody. He didn't have it
0: tattooed on him, Rory. He's all right. (laughs)
2: He maybe just really likes Claret and Blue. We'll be West Ham next. (laughs) it, It does feel a bit like Deitch... If you if you were in Sean Dyche's position, I think you you would be be thinking now: Is this as far as I can take this club? Because Burnley have been incredibly sensibly run. They're kind of the opposite to Bournemouth. They've they've got a new tra- when their when their time in the Premier League comes to an end, which it inevitably will at some point, they'll have a new training ground. They'll have a lot of money in the bank. the 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 future of the club will will be secure for years to come. It's been run really sensibly. They will need to go and spend a bit of money this summer, I think, to to bring in some fresh blood and potentially to kind of take on that next like plain evolution to see if they can if they can become a little bit more expansive. And I think it would be understandable if Deitch looked at that and thought, well, maybe that's a job for somebody else, I want to go and see if I can can start a new project. And as much as he's not fashionable, which is an image he doesn't always help himself with, he's, he's a lot more innovative than people give him credit for, Deitch. But I spoke to him during lockdown, and I ran him while he was jet washing, and that was a really Sean Deitch image, that he he was spending his time jet washing stuff. And I sometimes think, like it's Sunday, nice that he t-
3: bloody Sunday. <laughs> he
2: t- he t- it was really nice that he told me. It's a great bit of colour as a journalist, but you do think you, that's not going to convey the right. Pep Guardiola does not have a jet washer. Pep Guardiola maybe pays someone to jet wash stuff for him, but maybe not. Maybe he doesn't care about you know clean patios. But right. was he washing I, his jet? Do you think maybe Pep would be doing that? Pep might wash his jet. That might be that might be what jet washing is to Guardiola. But I think. Deitch maybe would be, be forgiven for looking at Burnley and thinking this rebuilding job is not for me.
0: That the bench on Monday had two goalkeepers, only seven in total and seven players that had four minutes of Premier League experience between them.
3: Yeah, I mean... It's a very Sean Dyche thing to do, but that does explain why he's only used four subs out of a possible 15 since, uh, since lockdown ended. So, you know, Burnley, they've taken 45 points from 36 goals this season and in, in their Premier League history, they've got 242 points from 226 goals. They make the most of, of everything one of the teams that done that also did that was Stoke who scored 398 goals and got 457 points in their premier league time um, and we saw what happened to them eventually they went down and you know possibly could could be dropping even further so yeah planning for the future is is key
0: and knowing all of this if you're a burnley fan and you can see that you're teetering on europa league football do you say ah ah ah, ah. Put the brakes on, we don't want to go there because this squad is not going to be able to cope with Europa League football as well as Premier League.
1: Uh, that would be a situation as high pressure as being the thing that manages Sean That Dyer. jet washes jet, the Jets. Jet washing, right. ExO all right, well, Burnley chat tick. There you go, Mark Davidson. And next up, let's try and get to the bottom of one or two of the remarkable stories coming out from the Championship and in general off the field of play in football. Are Derby, sorry, Wayne Rooney's Derby about to see their promotion hope scuppered by a point penalty? What's going on at Wigan and what is the latest on that Newcastle takeover? Listener, what is going on? For answers, let's hear now from The Athletic's Football News and Investigations reporter, Matt Slater from The Athletic. Matt Slater, investigator, thanks for joining us, man. Mm. Yeah, hi, how are you? Very good, thank you. Very good. Uh, OK, so question one on my list is Newcastle. Uh, the WTO ruling doesn't seem positive for the Saudi takeover. Uh, the Premier League say it's complicated. When's the verdict going to come out, do you think?
5: Oh, uh, well, uh, we've been waiting for that for about three months. And if you speak to um, the buying side, you know, they've been putting out positive messages throughout. You know, guys, it's imminent. We'll have the keys next week, etc., etc. And, you know, one week's become two two weeks, become three. And here we are in, you know, deep into the sort of third month of this. Um, Look, I I think, you know, people have, you know, been made to look a little bit daft by trying to predict when we will get this. Um, The Premier Chief Executive, Richard Masters, was quizzed about this on Tuesday by MPs on the Digital Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee. And he neatly swerved and sidestepped, well, I say neatly, he looks unbelievably uncomfortable and annoyed at times uh, about this. Um, So I'm going to swerve it as well. I'm not going to give you a prediction of when. All I can say is that it is rumbling on. It's become very, very controversial on several levels. And um, it has thrown up issues... And dilemmas that a kind of sporting organisation that, that runs a competition, you know, probably never thought it would have to be tackling, you know, you know, the history of the Arab peoples. Um, um, you know, digital piracy, I guess, is much more sort of uh, in their wheelhouse. But you know, really complicated um, state disputes, um, and uh, it's 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 a mess.
1: Mm. Do you think? and obviously the whole human rights issue which a lot of people would say is not all that complicated but it, it certainly is as you quite correctly point out the Premier League didn't think that they would necessarily be called on to judge on uh, do you think that the delay means that it's unlikely to happen or it's something that just has enough momentum now that it will eventually go through
5: I think it's probably more the latter I mean I've been saying for a while that I still think this deal will happen just, just on the human rights no one is dismissing that no one is going to say that, that Saudi Arabia doesn't pose Real concerns um, on lots of levels. You know, Yemen, uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Um, you know, um, the, its human rights record. It's the lack of democracy. You know, There's a long list. Um, uh, unfortunately, though, we are we are talking about a football competition and the football laws that apply. And and the one that applies in this case is the owners and directors test. And it's a pretty black and white tick box exercise that is supposed to work out if you are the kind of person that could invest in this country, that could buy a company in this country. And subjective elements, subjective judgments about foreign policy aren't there. They're just not there. One thing that is there, though, is the piracy question, which is fundamental to the Premier League's business model, more fundamental, arguably, than ever before because of lockdown and because of playing behind closed doors and the situation the whole industry is in right now. And the fact that a very, very sophisticated piracy operation has been running out of Saudi Arabia that is targeting one of the Premier League's best broadcast partners, be in sports, is very, very problematic if an arm of the Saudi state, its sovereign wealth fund, is then trying to buy one of our clubs. That's already pretty, pretty a big dilemma for the Premier League. On top of that, the Premier League has been... Going into bat for being in sport, the Premier League has a fantastic reputation for tackling piracy. It's one of the reasons why the Premier League is the richest football league in the world. It is recognised by its broadcast partners as one of the good guys, as a competition organiser that will go into you and fight and will shut down pub landlords and dodgy feeds and everything else. So when in needed help, the Premier League was there. The Premier League has tried nine times. To take up legal action in Saudi Arabia about the piracy operation there, which is called B out Q play on B in, and has failed. It's failed because the Saudis will not take the case. Now that's the background to the the, the disputes between Qatar and Saudi Arabia between B in and B out Q. Premier League's in the middle. Now the reason why I think the deal will still go through. This is the Premier League's best ever opportunity to tackle piracy. It actually finally now has some leverage over Saudi Arabia. If it wants Saudi Arabia to open up its course, to to shut down piracy, to take the protection of intellectual property properly, now's the time. Saudi actually wants something from the Premier League. Saudi's listening, but the Saudis have done their best to mess it up. It's been a bit of a disaster from the beginning. It, It is chugging along. When we get there, I don't know but I think
1: it will happen. Matt, I do have a couple of other things I wanted to ask you about. One relates to, you mentioned the uh, test and takeover process, uh, which was uh, used about a month ago for Wigan when they got taken over by a Hong Kong-based consortium. So um, I imagine you and everyone was rather surprised to find them going into administration just four weeks later, which means that they are facing a whopping 12 points penalty and possible relegation to League One. Yeah, this is
5: a this is a very surprising story. It doesn't reflect well on the EFL's owners and directors test process. It doesn't reflect well on the state of the football economy. It's. It's really confusing. I think it's a little bit too early to work out quite what's happened. What we do know is the administration process was a surprise. We've mentioned, you've mentioned that uh, the club was sold. David Whelan, who, of course, was the benefactor there for so long, sold the club to this Hong Kong-based company, I think, two years ago. Um, You know, they they came along, they wanted to, to, like everyone does, they wanted to sort of put some money in and, and, you know, establish it in the championship and ideally progress it into the Premier League. I think what everyone finds out when they try that is the championship is a just a car crash in terms of finances. It is just it's just very very hard for anyone to do that sustainably. It's very very hard for clubs to compete with, you know, Premier League ready clubs, clubs that are in receipt of parachute payments. It's not a fair competition. The championship. So, you know, what what appears to have happened is that these these new guys, newish guys, have for whatever reason and look they've mentioned brexit they've mentioned uh some people have even mentioned the coronavirus though the timing just doesn't make sense for that excuse um that they that they'd had enough that they you know that this wasn't this wasn't as easy as they thought it was going to be it was a lot more expensive than they thought it was going to be so there was a there was a sale to a related party to another company now it does look like the first company effectively sold it to themselves um there there is a a lot of crossover between the, the first Hong Kong-based company and the second company who are actually based offshore. I can't remember if it's the Cayman Islands or British Virgin Islands. But, you know, that that there does appear to be something going on there, this 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 sort of shuffling of the paper, this, this sort of change of ownership. The FL waved that through because they'd already waved the first lot through. And the first lot were run by a guy who does have a high profile in Hong Kong, does have a reptile business. He's in the uh, casino game and they thought this new lot would be fine well this new lot 3 4 weeks later have put the club in administration surprising everyone and it just it, there's just things about it that don't stack up i mean they are risking relegation to league 1 if they want to sell the club they're going to be selling a league well they in danger they're going to sell a league 1 club not a championship club they'll get less money for that um, that, that doesn't make sense. I mean, they had to fund it for another month. Wigan were flying. They were absolutely comfortable. So there are, there are things that we don't know yet about this. There's this very big loan that's being placed on the club with eye-watering interest. You know, what is that about? Is this process about shedding all the other debt? I I, I think this is a, a Chinese story and Chinese stories are very, very hard to get into.
1: All right. Well, we'll wait to hear more about that, Matt. Uh, just lastly, then, in terms of points penalties in the Championship, a word that that might happen to Derby County and Sheffield Wednesday. Sheffield Wednesday are currently 10 points above the relegation zone. Derby, who after their midweek win over Preston, are just one point off the playoffs. What's all this about? Why are they facing penalties?
5: The, the background to these cases, I mean, they are separate and different in, in kind of nuanced ways, but they are broadly similar. This is all to do with the amount of money that EFL clubs are allowed to lose over three-year periods. It's about 39 million pounds. This is this is the, the financial fair play rule in the in the in the EFL. Um, both clubs were were you know very likely to to lose considerably more than that at the end of 2018. Both clubs, uh, Derby first. Um, spotted a loophole in the rules that if you sold the stadium to yourself and then leased it back um, you could book quite a big profit uh, in, in a year uh, that could turn losses into profits and that's what they did and that's how they got around to fair play it was, it was legal it was allowed but there are arguments about the amount the valuation of both those stadiums particularly in Derby's case they valued Pride Park at £80 million Sheffield sure Wednesday a slightly more Conservative 60 million pounds. Um, Villa have done it as well. I think it was 57 for them. Reading have done it, 27ish for them. Birmingham, I think about 23. So I think it's about five five clubs that have done it. Um, so there's a there's an argument about the valuation. You know, is that fair? Where have you got that from? Can we have a look at that ourselves? And the FL have done an independent valuation of Pride Park, and they think it's about 50 million. So right there, there's a 30 million pound difference. Um, with Sheffield Wednesday, it's more about the timing. They, they It looks like they've kind of got their timing a little bit out of kilter and, you know, could they have been too late with the sale to make a difference in the year that they really needed to make a year? Derby's got a bit of a sort of side issue around how they value players on their books. So look, they are complicated, but they all boil down to the same thing really, you know, did you lose too much money and have you tried to exploit this loophole, which as I said is legal? Have you overdone it? You know, do you actually still face a financial fair play penalty? And if you do, there's a sliding scale, there's a little bit you can add on top for an aggravated breach if you sort of fib to us or you know you, you weren't you didn't deal with this in good faith. And that's where we're at with both of them. Uh, both clubs deny, strongly deny any wrongdoing and have very, very vigorously defended themselves.
1: Of course, one story not touched on there by Matt Slater it was Roy Keane to Azerbaijan. Is it going to happen, Rory? Uh, I think probably not.
2: Mm. Uh, I think that seems unlikely to me that Roy Keane uh, would, would take his sort of wandering angry man circus act all the way to, um, to Baku. I think, I think he's probably got other things, other irons in the fire. Can't quite see it, really. Okay, all
1: right. Here's a quick tweet from Rohan then. The other day, I was watching the Villa versus Wolves game and was thinking about how rare the goalkeeper to manage a career move happens in top-flight football. Can we, asked Rowan, get a list of some of the great managers who are former goalkeepers? I realise now that I've kind of sprung this on you, uh, people, but um, I can contribute Dino Zoff and, uh, that's it. James, come on. Walter Zenger.
2: Well, yeah, oh, yeah. But he Zenger. says great managers, I, not I, managers. By, <laughs> yeah. the, by the standards of most people, Walter Zenger is a great manager. That's true. That is true.
1: I just I just don't think he would have had that career if he wasn't Walter Zenga. but I suppose that's not the issue here. He's currently doing all right at Callery. It's, it's a fair point. And he was such a very, very special keeper.
0: It raises a really important issue, which is why aren't there more? Because you, you look at goalkeepers, they have the full sight of the pitch. They're learning and perhaps coaching from the back quite often. And a lot of the time when I interview goalkeepers, they're a lot more sensible too. <laughs>
1: Aren't they a bit weird,
3: Lindsay? Is that the issue? I don't
0: know.
3: They're all Hmm. mad. You don't have to be mad to work here in the six-year-old books, but it helps. Um, There are a couple more.
2: Okay. Uh, Michel Prudhomme. Okay. Who's had a sort of long and faintly okay career, largely Mm -hmm. in Belgium. Um, And apparently, and I'm I'm not going to pretend this is from anything other than Google, um, Raymond Gertels, who was manager of Marseille when they when they won the Champions League, did they win the Champions They won the Champions League, didn't they? It was, yeah, we, it oh yeah, 93, yeah. yeah. We, we don't like talking
3: about it, but they won the Champions League. Um, but he was a goalkeeper. So there you go. Yeah, I mean, there's not loads. I mean, Nigel Adkins did okay. Um, but the re- when Southampton replaced him with Pochettino, and the Southampton fans were all like, oh, it's a disgrace. And then about a week later, we're like, "Ah, oh, no, actually, it's quite good. Um,
2: but Ad- Adkins' career trajectory was goalkeeper, physio manager. That must be unique
3: pretty unusual yeah um you've got to rate mike walker as well he was a goalkeeper became a manager and then had a son who was a goalkeeper that's also pretty niche i would say
1: producer charlie's just weighed in with a, a pretty blue chip
2: uh, suggestion himself yulan lopetegui who's currently rocking at Sevilla, employed by monchi king of sports and directors unless you're a roma fan in which
3: case he's like the sure. devil or something uh who was also a goalkeeper wow I mean I assume the original tweet came in because Nuno was a goalkeeper, right?
0: Oh yeah, that's that's the whole inspiration behind it, because Nuno's obviously leading the lot.
3: Right. That's enough
1: keepers who are now managers. Very shortly we're gonna look at one or two more of the weekend's stories. First though, it's Ben Green with Lee Price.
4: Thank you very much, Jim. By Lee Price from Paddy Power is on the line as always. And Lee, let's start at the top and work our way to the bottom. Um, Leicester—they are having a pretty poor time of it, as we've been
7: discussing.
4: Are they going to miss out on Champions League qualification?
7: Yeah, this has crept up on me a bit. When we resumed Premier League project restart, Leicester were one to eight to finish in the top four. They're now just thirteen to ten to miss out on those top four spots as their form crumbles. However. We do expect that the top five will be enough to qualify for the Champions League and they're 1-14 to 14 to finish within that because, let's face it, it would take a spectacular turn of events for them not to.
4: Well, as Lindsay's been saying, Wolves are very much in the race for the Champions League. They're taking on Arsenal this weekend. What's going to happen?
7: <laughs> ben, you're going to have to forgive me for some stupidity here. Standard, I know. But I can't pick the result here. It feels like value everywhere. And here's why. No team is odds-on to win this match. Wolves clearly the favourites at home, whatever that means these days. But they're 11-10, better than evens to win this match against an out-of-sorts Arsenal team. Arsenal have won a couple of games in their defence, but they're 23-10 to to win this. That is a long old price. The draw is the same price, and I do like a draw, especially post-lockdown. Who knows what's going to happen? Not me.
4: And finally, it's Watford versus Chelsea. Give us some numbers for this game and the overall relegation picture.
7: Hmm. Does anyone call this a London Derby? No. Good. I'm sick of shoehorned London Derbies. Good for Chelsea and Watford. I respect that. And actually, we think this will be particularly good for the Blues. They're two to five to win it. Watford, on the other hand, are a lengthy seven to one. That is a brutal price for a team desperately needing points. The draw, which probably helps no one, is ten to three. As for relegation, Norwich are one to fifty. We've written them off. Filler are on the way too. They're two to seven. We make. Bournemouth the favourites for that third and final relegation spot there four to nine odds on at the moment. West Ham are shortening all the time though currently seventeen to ten and Watford just slightly longer at twenty one to ten. As for Brighton they're out of the conversation they're now twenty two to one to go down. Good form.
1: You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the PaddyPower Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. We'll be stopping very shortly, listener. But before we do, there's a couple of fixtures coming up this weekend that we haven't really addressed yet. Uh, well, but one is a huge one on, on Sunday for Aston Villa as they travel to Anfield, where, of course, Liverpool have won every single game they played in the Premier League this season wow now we heard earlier on about suggestions that Sean Dyche might be taking over at Aston Villa are we really at that point already with Dean Smith that they might pull the plug on him
0: it's just speculation at the moment I think Is this it? happens doesn't it
1: what what about Villa they were the second biggest spenders last summer what was it about 140 million or so that they they, they blew how much trouble will they be in if they if they do go down now
3: there were a lot of articles at the time about how they weren't the new Fulham, who obviously had spent a lot of money the previous summer and then went down. So um, I imagine they would be in a fair amount of trouble, yeah. Um, you know, not as much as Bournemouth, but given that we just heard from Matt talking about how Villa have also done the stadium shuffle trick then yeah I think it's going to be tough particularly as we don't really know how the football league's going to look next season with the you know with lockdown and social distancing and things like that.
7: Mm.
1: They play Liverpool this Sunday and then on Thursday they're up against Man United so tough run of games although they did actually move up a place in the table on Wednesday without playing which a lot of people observed might be the key for them in future that's because Bournemouth goal difference took such a knock at the hands of newcastle uh newcastle who will be facing west ham and i know lindsay you wanted to sign off with a point about alan pardew
0: well it's famously been on social media this week that his eight-year contract came to an end and i, I tried to think of all the hot places he's been sunning himself in whilst that's been ticking down uh, you've but been it,
1: thinking about alan pardew sunning himself
0: <laughs> a little <laughs> not too much Um, But it also made me think of other bad deals in football. And that's something that we're talking about on the Offside Rule, which is also part of the athletic family now. It's a way of me getting that into the podcast. Right. And uh, Phil Jones at Manchester United, you may recall he signed a new deal and it was a long deal last year. A uh, five-year deal, keeping him at Man United till 2024. He's made eight appearances all season. He doesn't seem to be figuring for Oli Gunnar Solskjaer at the moment. And remember as well, they doubled his wages, £120,000 a week. And I just think that might be one of the worst deals that Man United have done recently.
2: Are we, are we prepared to say now that Phil Jones probably isn't the new Duncan Edwards? <laughs>
0: <laughs> probably.
1: Do you guys have any other really bad deals that you would like to
3: I learned one this this week which I hadn't seen before. I'm no expert on baseball, but I saw this thing there's a player called Bobby Bonilla who got released by the New York Mets in 2000.
1: They iced him.
3: Yeah, they owed him about 6 million dollars which they didn't want to pay him. So he said, "Okay, fine. Um forget it for now, but from 2011 until 2035, every July the 1st, pay me like, I think it's just over a million dollars. So every year on July the 1st, they pay him about $1.1 million and that's going to carry on until 2035, which seems strange, but also probably good for him. He must love when it gets to June, it's like, all right, kids, we're going on holiday again.
0: So effectively what he's done is he's got them to sort of manage his money as well. Had he had it in one lump sum, he might have blown it all. But this way, you know, he manages to keep Consecutively yeah. being a millionaire,
2: we can't be far from from Barcelona coming up with that arrangement with some sort of player, <laughs> surely. Yeah, But if any 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 football team is likely to to take the vanilla approach, it's Bar- Barcelona. Right. At some point, will be paying someone a million quid not to play for them once a year for thirty years.
1: It'll be Antoine Griezmann on, on current form, poor <laughs> for, chap. Of course, there's been loads of other stories midweek, uh, especially in Europe, and we now have a very special a European podcast to take care of all of that business. Well, I say now. We've, re- we've returned to that format, and there'll be another one of those out next Monday evening, Tuesday morning for you. But if in the meantime you're hungry for a bit of top European action, how about you check out the three goals that Juve put past Genoa? When was that? Monday, Tuesday, Tuesday night, I think it was. Each of them more special than the last. Very nice. That, though, for today's show is it. Check out Lindsay's The Offside Rule and all the rubbish deals that they can come up with in that. When's (laughs) that out, Lindsay?
0: That's out on Friday.
1: All right. Excellent. And, of course, you can find Rory Smith in The New York Times and Duncan Alexander wherever there are stats to stat.
3: Inside calculators on spreadsheets. (laughs) All the numbers.
1: (laughs) Listener, enjoy whatever it is you're about to do with the rest of your day, and we'll be here for you on Sunday evening. Do
4: join us for that for now, though, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddynewsmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter, and make sure you check out our brand-new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees
0: Media.